There's distress because of divorce. There's divorce because of death and medical things. And like, there's just so many things that relate to distress is it's just a normal part of the cycle. Then you just have to get better at discovering what it is that distress. And so sometimes you can see it just by driving around the shopping center that looks beat up, the boarded up windows, you know, the, you know, a uh, functional obsolescence of distress. And you'd be like, I'm driving by this thing that looks like a convenient location. I don't know why. Well, they may have owned it for 50 years. They owe no mortgage on it. So nobody's going to ever foreclose on them. But there's maybe distress behind the scenes that you're just unique to seeing because you drive by it every single day and say, hey, there's something about that that I can maybe reach out to and connect up with. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build multiple streams of passive income through the most proven asset class in the world, real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Vogt, and today our guest is Jake Harris. Today we're talking about investing in distressed real estate. We're talking about the principles that Jake uses to identify distressed real estate opportunities, mistakes that new distressed real estate investors make, the one lesson, the biggest lesson that he would advise new distressed real estate investors to apply to their businesses. We also dig into his experience as an investor before and then through the Great Recession, how that led him to hit rock bottom, decisions that he made in his real estate portfolio that made him bottom out and just pray to get his net worth back to zero. Well, he did that. He got it much, much higher than zero. Had a successful career, has had a successful career as a distressed real estate investor. So we're extracting lessons from his experience today. What it has enabled him to scale, how he mitigates risk in these deals. So many great things. I had about an hour and a half long conversation with Jake. You're only hearing about a half an hour of our conversation, but he is a wealth of knowledge and information. Very great guy to talk to. And I think you're going to learn a lot from our discussion today. For the distressed real estate investors out there, there's a ton of knowledge in here. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Boat. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, like to learn about investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we'll look forward to learning about you and your goals and everything soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Once again, our guest today is Jake Harris. Today, we're talking about investing in distressed real estate and the principles around doing so. Without any further ado, here we go. Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. We've had a great conversation for like a half an hour so far. It's been great getting to know you a little bit. For our listeners out there, could you tell us about yourself, your business background, and what you do? Well, I'm probably... It's probably very dissimilar to everyone else. It is about real estate. We do investing. <laughs> I'm sure nobody else on your, as a podcast guest has ever mentioned any of those things on your show. You know, to, to be honest, 
I do a lot of the things that everybody else does, what you do as well. We, you know, put together funds. We do commercial real estate. We primarily invest in Texas. We flipped, I don't know, I flipped something like 12, 1300 houses in, in uh, 23, 26 states, uh, sold a lot of those to institutional capital. But, you know, the really in reality is, is I'm looking for something, you know, kind of the next level, the 2.0 version of what I'm doing. And so we, we even talked about this a little bit before was helping to guide other people and to avoid some of the pitfalls and being investors and, you know, the passive wealth strategies and understanding things that I'm not going to say that being a GP or a sponsor of a deal, there's anything wrong with it. But oftentimes I find people that are very, very successful in their individual careers that are looking to jump into being a deal sponsor because they think the grass is greener, but it's oftentimes just trading one job for another job. And so I help people stop trading time for money. I love that. That's great. And you specialize, you've written quite a bit, spoken quite a bit about investing in distressed real estate, which I think people ask about because they see potential opportunity there. They think, Hey, it's, you know, maybe I can get it on the cheap. I can fix it up. But there are certainly a lot of pitfalls in buying distressed real estate. It's distressed for a reason. And I hope we can dig into distressed real estate investing today a little bit, learn about some of the pitfalls and how it can be done successfully. Yeah. So, and obviously the, the, you know, my call it the last 12 years, 14 years has mostly been doing and buying distressed real estate. And so I've learned a lot of lessons, made lots and lots of mistakes in that process. And so I even wrote a book, you know, Catching Knives, a guide to investing in a distressed commercial real estate uh, to kind of give some insights. I wrote it in 2020 because I was like, this is it, fellas. This is it. It's time. <laughs> There's going to be blood everywhere. There's going to be great opportunities to buy real estate and it's going to be shooting fish in the barrel. Everybody's going to get super scared. Well, and the government printed $20 trillion and all real estate value tripled. So I wouldn't say it for being my crystal ball of accuracy, but what we talk about is there's some very strong fundamental things that you need to understand about real estate investing and especially in the distressed real estate space because you're going to have limited amounts of information available to you. And so your systems have to be so much more comprehensive or robust and you have to be doing and preparing for those things before they actually happen especially in the commercial real estate space because assets real estate commercial has scarcity available to it and so for the people that don't know that i know you picked it up all the all the same catching knives oh that's clever love it a lot of other people are like i don't get it and you know and so there's this uh, the financial advice is don't catch falling knives so it's just like, wait until the knives fall or the values fall out the bottom, and then you can just go pick them up. That's awesome when you have a, a Tesla stock and you're waiting for it to go from 420 to 69, you know, or whatever, <laughs> whatever the value is. And you're just like, oh, I bought about, I'll go pick up and I'll go buy a right. million dollars worth or $10 million worth of stock. But I go, what happens is when you're talking an office building or a hotel or multifamily building in downtown Richmond, Virginia, that may only transact once a generation that becomes distressed because that family got over levered or you know that building owner or there something went wrong to it 
And so it's going to transact once a generation. And all you need is one other competitor to come in and buy that asset. So that scarcity in real estate is what forces you in which you need to be prepared to go catch that falling knife when that opportunity presents itself. The deal of the lifetime, I say, happens about every other week. And for those that are prepared to get that deal of the lifetime, it oftentimes is doing your homework, doing your research, having your systems in place before that deal of the lifetime presents itself because there's going to be a limited amount of time to act quickly. I give a lot of illustrations to that on like subdivisions that double, triple, quadruple, 10x your money in a month because you were able to go in and quickly understand the value or we're like, we'll get the next one. The next one never came around. We never got that one where you go buy it for 4 million and sell it for 20 million a month later. Like, well, we'll buy the next one. The next one never came out. And so those are the things that you need to do and you need to do your homework, understand what do you do well? What are the skill sets that you bring to the table? And then it's a team sport. You and I have been doing real estate investing for 20 years. I have you know, a master's degree. I went to grad school for international real estate. I have a broker's license. I have finance background. I've been doing this and done lots of and hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions. And I do not know it all. I'm still every single day discovering new stuff about it. And I was like, I don't like reading legal contracts. I don't like reading lease extracts. I don't like doing those things because that's not what is my core competency. I can do it, but it's like so much work for me to do it. That's why I have an attorney that reviews all those things and gets through all the detailed information of those. I have a, a background and experience in construction. I started in commercial construction 20 years ago. So I know how things work and what they should take from a timing and a cost perspective. But that doesn't mean everybody has those skill sets. So then it's like figuring out what you need to assemble as your Avengers, your dream team, your brain power. And oftentimes these things don't actually even really cost money. Contractor will do this because they want the job. They'll give you advice on it. And so really what you need to do is start understanding, networking, connecting, you know, letting people know about what you're specifically very, very interested in. And so to your point, a lot of people come to me and say, I want a good deal. And hey, I was dude, like, who doesn't? Sure. But what does that mean to you? That's in a very ambiguous term. True. What's a good deal to you? Maybe a terrible deal to me. Or a good deal to me may be a terrible deal to you, like and vice versa. And so it's like, first, you need to understand what it is that you're aiming at. What is it that you're trying to achieve? Once you have that, you can start defining the team that you need to hit the target. And so it's everything that I've kind of learned and made these mistakes. And, and one of the things that I put into the book is, it was 2008, I was sitting on a street corner in Tucson remember this very, very vividly. Part of it because I was rock bottom. I was crying, sobbing out loud, sitting on a street corner. Dear Lord, can I be worth no money? Zero dollars would be awesome. To take you back just a few years prior to that, I got out of the army. My goal was to be a millionaire before 30. I had achieved that. Hung out with Rich Dad. Robert Kiyosaki was in the studio in Scottsdale, you know, Rich Dad Radio. And he was like, be cautious, young man. 
easy come, easy go. The market's going to crash. And I was like, old man, what, what do you know? Yeah, what do you know <laughs> about anything? I am so smart. I Look at this. I bought all these things at 20% under market value. Like the market would have to go down more than 20% before it ever even touched my position. Like you just don't understand, you know, like, well, he's right. I was wrong. <laughs> I was 28 year old kid that, you know, go up over the tip of my skis. I was over levered. And so I was coming to closing table, bringing 10,000, then 20,000, then 50,000, then a hundred thousand. So I ran out of money before I ran out of properties. So now I had a couple of properties left. And at that point, you know, I had good credit up to that point because I had all these properties. The banks would even honor processing payments out of my bank account. And so I had a negative bank account, negative $6,000 or something like that. Oof. And so it was like, I can't even use my credit cards. I can't use any debit cards. Like I have not money, negative money in my <laughs> bank account. So now I'm like, how do I get by? And so I'm having to do jobs for cash, get back to my construction routes. I'm doing jobs for cash to get by. And so I'm doing this job, this remodel in this house down in Tucson, this Adobe house. People that don't know, these are mud wall houses, like mud, one foot thick, two foot thick walls that are just mud that they then put plaster and, you know, and hay and other sides inside. And so I'm like fixing up this house because nobody else will do it. But I'm so hard up for money and I'll do it for cash. And here's where it gets even worse. In this you know, falling down of, of, you know, spiral of losing houses, losing houses, coming to closing table, running out of money, now having negative thing. The girl I thought I was going to marry broke up with me. Oh man. My brothers moved back to California from Arizona because they're like, dude, Jake, you're an asshole. Like we're not hanging <laughs> out with you anymore. You're so focused on money. Like all it is about money, 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 money. So they moved back. And so I'm there by myself. And the girl that I thought I was going to marry felt bad for me. So she recommended to her new boyfriend, and this is relatively new, breakup, is her new boyfriend, Jake, can do the remodel on your house. He's a contractor. So I'm doing the remodel for the new boyfriend of the girl I thought I was going to marry. And they come walk through the house and they're all of it. He doesn't know our previous relationship. So I get this heartbreak, this misery, the first true real heartbreak of my life. I have a negative bank account. I have a negative net worth. I have properties that I owe more than what they're worth. And I'm doing a job for, for cash for the boyfriend of the guy. And I'm just sitting there and I was just like, I'm broken. And so I sat down there and I cried and I was just like, dear Lord, can I be worth no money? I'm not, I'm not just a millionaire, just like zero. Like, whew, that would be awesome. That'd be so great to be worth zero. And so that, and that's where I started developing these systems from the catching knives. I got through and I was like, what did I do wrong? How did I end up here? What are the things that I did right? And then what are the things I did wrong? And then how do I amplify in two, three, four, ten 10 X on the, the things that I did right? And that's what it came up to the principles that I put into catching knives. How do you avoid these mistakes? How do you avoid being sitting on a street corner, being worth no money or negative net worth and praying to be worth no money? And so that's what I try to give out to people is that, you know, avoid the pits of despair, uh, especially, you know, it's, it's knowledge and it's just so much knowledge and then taking that action afterwards.
Wow. So how long did it take you, uh, ostensibly, you did get back to zero at one point and then massively exceeded that. How long did it take you to get back to the back to zero from that rock bottom? I'd say probably a year or so to get back to zero. I did not file bankruptcy. Uh, I did have a couple foreclosures though. And that stayed with me. The foreclosure stayed on my credit for seven years, at least on my credit reporting, but I still comes up. So and that's 2008, it still comes up. I have to write letters and they're like, hey, what happened in 2008? And I was like, well, there's this little subprime thing that uh, came up like, hey, like everyone else had a foreclosure. So it's like, it still pulls up. It's not affecting my credit score today, but it's still something that's a, a mark that's just a reminder of that. So getting back to zero, and then not only that, I was like, well, I'm gonna have to figure out other ways to buy real estate that doesn't involve using my credit or my money or how do I do that? And so I'm assuming other people have figured this out. And so that's in kind of then the evolution and the growth from 2008 and, uh, you know, putting together systems to do that. Awesome. Great. So, you know, fast forwarding to today and today's market, you know, the, the market condition, I suppose, if you will, of uh, distressed real estate or, or the type of distressed real estate that you find today is undoubtedly very different from the distressed real estate that one would find in 2008. There were a lot more distressed owners back then. We're just in a, you know, it's a different situation. It's 14 years later, things change. And I think folks are, you know, wanting to learn about what's the opportunity in distressed real estate, distressed commercial real estate today, and how can we avoid pitfalls and, and making mistakes in, in the future? So let's dig into that and your thoughts about the current state of the market, how basically how not to do things in distressed real estate today and, you know, moving forward where, what do you see? Yeah. So as a professional investor, one of the things that I see is a lot of people are trying to time the markets. I'm going to wait until the market goes down okay. and then I'm going to invest. Uh, they sit on the sidelines for a long time. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. So I've been hearing this guys that are waiting in in 2012, 2014, 2015, 2018, 2020, like I'm going to wait until the market crashes. I'm going to wait until the market crashes. I'm going to wait until the market crashes. And so do not try to time the market. And so think of this and in the, the analogy, Howard Marks wrote a book called Mastering Market Cycles. And it's not just real estate, but it's all market cycles is there's certain fundamentals, the supply and demand factors, the fundamentals of the market. And then there is the consumer confidence or what, you know, individuals. So even though the fundamentals might be strong in which I believe in real estate, they're very, very strong. There's a lack of housing, four and a half, five million residential units short in the United States. Right but right now we are coming into a consumer confidence issue when things like the headlines say recession or interest rates are going up or something else like that is they don't feel as emboldened. And so the emotional factor is driving some of the what is playing out real time in the market. And so the analogy is like being a professional blackjack player. There's times when you're putting a bet out there and you have face cards, you're splitting tens where you're going to put more money down. We're like, dude, it's the deck stacked in my favor. It's distressed. There's lots of buying opportunities that exist. So I'm moving all the chips. I'm betting heavy. I'm going to, I'm leveraging the house. I'm mortgaging my, you know, pulling money out of my retirement account. I'm doing everything because the market's so distressed that 
I feel like anything that I invest is going to two, four, five, ten x. Then there's other times when you're maybe a little bit more conservative and you say, hey, I'm not going to split these 10s. I think a 20 is a pretty solid hand. I'm going to hold on that. I'm not doubling down on it. And so when you start understanding, you're still making bets all the time in all market cycles when it goes up, when it's down, when it's flat, when it's other. So eliminate the thought process is you're going to try to time the market. If you can get in, you know, disconnect from that, then you can start looking at more fundamentals of the real estate from the deal that you're specifically looking at. And there is distress in all markets. There's because what happens is there's distress because of divorce. There's divorce because of death and medical things. And like, there's just so many things that relate to distress is it's just a normal part of the cycle. Then you just have to get better at discovering what it is that distress. And so sometimes you can see it just by driving around the shopping center that looks beat up, the boarded up windows, you know, the, you know, a uh, functional obsolescence of distress. And you'd be like, I'm driving by the thing that looks like a convenient location. I don't know why. Well, they may have owned it for 50 years. They owe no mortgage on it. So nobody's going to ever foreclose on them. But there's maybe distress behind the scenes that you're just unique to seeing because you drive by it every single day and say, hey, there's something about that that I can maybe reach out to and connect up with. I do a lot of data analytics. We track property ownerships. And so then we not only track property ownerships, but we also track who owns it. Are they local? What is their other investment thesis? So commercial real estate tends to, and I call this the mafia rule. There's typically like four <laughs> to five families in every city that own about 80 or 90% of the commercial real estate. So you like, all you need to do is find out about those four or five families, what they do, what they invest in, what they don't invest into. And now you've discovered, and with like the Pareto principle, by 20% of the effort, you can discover 80% of the market. And so now you can understand like, where are the gaps? Where can you play and be opportunistic or have very little competition? And this works especially well in secondary and tertiary markets. It doesn't work very well in Denver or LA or, you know, Dallas or something like that, because there's 150 families that own all of the real estate or a thousand families that own the real estate. But it works really good when you're in Shreveport, Louisiana or San Antonio or, you know, other kind of secondary tertiary markets. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I definitely appreciate your comment about not trying to time the market. I totally agree. One of the early real estate investing events that I went to in person was in Phoenix and a, a prominent uh, real estate investor who's based there. I'm not going to say who it was, but someone with a, a significant amount of experience came on stage and said, oh, the market's going to fall apart. It's all terrible. Everything's falling apart. Well, he was still buying real estate. He wasn't selling everything. And you know what? His projection was wrong, or at least it was probably incredibly very early. So um, yeah, I like not trying to time the market. I wonder how you square that. And I'm not predicting a crash or anything, but when I go back to the comment that Robert Kiyosaki made to you about, oh buddy, something's coming. And I presume your strategy isn't ready for the disruption in the market. So how would you square the idea of not trying to time the market with the comment that Robert Kiyosaki made about the timing of the market as regards to your strategy that you were using at the time. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Uh, explain that a little bit more. Sure. So at the time, you know, there was a crash on the way 
and Robert was saying that straight to your face. You said, old man, you know, you don't know what you're talking about or whatever. You know, what do you what do you think you know? But he was right. But in light of your current position, you would probably you would not say timing the market is the right thing to do either now or 14 years ago. So how would you say, you know, do we want to change our strategy to prepare for such a big disruption in the market? Or what are your thoughts about, you know, that if we were on the precipice of another big crash, if you had agreed with Robert, what would you change about what you were doing and not trying to time the market, but your strategy in approaching the market? Yeah. So, uh, where my, um, investment thesis was flawed was to one of the core principles of owning assets that are cash flowing. So cash flowing assets, and if you just own them forever, like literally like that's probably 90% of what you could do to mitigate any market correction and, and uh, dip in the, in the future. Inflationary pressures that we're kind of seeing right now raise real values, real estate values. And actually, I believe, and I was just talking about this on, on another you know podcast, is debt, low interest rate debt can actually be, be an asset mm-hmm. because you have fixed interest rate for the next 10 years. You know, if maybe if it's agency debt, 30, 40 years that you have, I mean, like that's a huge asset if interest rates go to five or six or seven or eight, or maybe they come back down. But I was like, that's a tremendous asset that you're making a spread off of every dollar you borrow over underneath interest rates. And so if you're borrowing money at 3% or 4% and interest or uh, you know inflation rates at eight, you're making a 4% return on every dollar you borrowed that's doing into that. And so I was like, so for that strategy and where I kind of erred was a couple of things, flipping a bunch of houses, being in and out of transactions, are okay when the market's kind of falling out, but it doesn't. And I was actually with uh, at dinner with Ken McElroy recently. And so Ken McElroy was like, hey, I did this with condos in the 90s. I bought apartments and I condoized them. And I did thousands of these and I made lots of money for all these other people and you know Lehman Brothers and all my partners. And I was like, I did the same thing, flipping a bunch of houses and I made for Blackstone an invitation home and paid the tax man and did all these things. You made all these fees, but at the end of the day, you didn't own any real estate. And so that is why and how I would change this thing is don't go get over levered. Be concerned about the equity amount that you have into that particular deal. And then if you're buying cash flowing assets and you plan to hold them forever, that by itself is going to get you 90% of the way to unlocking true wealth. Love it. I'm glad that we covered that because you, uh, you know, this is this is how we learn, and I, I think the comment about not trying to time the market is is very important because most people are actually pretty bad at timing the market in either direction, right? If you're sitting out waiting for the crash, well, when the crash actually happens, odds are pretty high that you're going to be too afraid to step in because you've been sitting out on sidelines. You don't know how to make a good deal from a bad deal because you haven't been active in the market, right? That's my philosophy around that. But Dolph DeRuz, who is a real estate advisor with Rich Dad. Uh, not very many people have read his book, but it was it's rich dad or real estate riches. Dolph DeRuz is an Australian guy, a PhD, and he's like, he said something that struck a chord with me, twenty some odd years ago. He said, "All wealth ultimately ends up in real estate. Huh. You make your money at Oracle, Larry, Larry Ellison. What do you do? 
you go buy real estate. You buy an island, the Hawaiian <laughs> island. You buy real estate along the coast of, of Lake Tahoe. You buy in Palo Alto and, you know, Facebook. What do you make all this money? You know, um, you know Zuckerberg, what's he do? Well, he goes buy his real estate. And so really what it is, is all wealth ultimately goes into real estate as a holding pattern. And not only that, all the tax codes are written for real estate holdings and it's very, very tax favorable. It is actually not as very favorable to have earned income or gaining it from a business, but it's very, very beneficial to own. And here's actually one of the other things I discovered. Almost every billionaire owns hotels. Huh. It's like that game of Monopoly where it's like, get out of the houses <laughs> and go to the hotels. And then if you look into the tax code, section 179, bonus depreciation and cost segregation and equipment write-offs and other things, those have always been in there for hotels. Just people recently have discovered it for a few other things where you can take your multifamily or your, or your commercial building and get some of those bonus depreciation. It's always been in the tax code for hotels. And so every billionaire owns them because they produce tremendous amounts of cash flow, but it's almost all written off. And you can write it off as your you know, active income against your other passive investments. And so it allows you to not pay taxes on all of your other real estate holdings by owning or investing into hotels. And so that's why Trump and Sean or uh, uh, Stephen Ross at related companies and George Perez and Conrad Hilton, like all these people, like why do they own hotels? Because they're unbelievable tax vehicles for storing and preserving wealth. Love it. I, I love that. So before we move on to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, I just wanted to to really try to sum it up for the folks out there who are considering investing in distressed real estate or they're interested in going that way. What is the main number one piece of advice or mistake they should avoid or one thing that you would tell them before they dive in? So number one most critical thing is due diligence. And actually, I've seen so many people ape into deals because they thought it was just going to be a good deal. And so the due diligence, I actually put together a whole even course on this because we have a 64-point checklist in which we go through on due diligence on every single asset we go through because while you're in escrow is the time to discover all of those things. What happens is when you close on a transaction, it's almost nearly impossible to go back and so, so many people just hope and pray it works out or whereas in residential, there's tremendous amounts of disclosures, you know, all these dis disclosures in commercial is buyer beware and it's a shark eat shark kind of world. And so there's oftentimes the reason somebody's selling it. And I'll give you one point <laughs> as far as you could buy something and be, someone could give it away to you for free. Here you go, Taylor. Here's a three-acre parcel in downtown Richmond. It's for free. Just take it. Awesome. And you go, man, oh, by the way, you didn't do your due diligence on that and research. It's actually contaminated. <laughs> and actually, you now own the contamination cleanup for that and for all the other properties in the proximity. And it's a $10 million environmental cleanup Oof. that you own for the next 20 years that you cannot sell because it's got, you know, dry cleaner used to be there or, you know, a steel mill or something else related that, that polluted and now it's polluted the groundwater and it's polluted these other things. 
And so this is something that you got for free. You're like, dude, it was cheap. It used to sell, sold for $2 million before. And now it's free. It's got to be awesome. It's got to be a good deal. That's understanding is like, did you do a phase one? Did you do an environmental? Did you check into the phase two? And so it's like, those are the things that you're like, I need to make sure this is a slam dunk while I'm in escrow. Because once you close and now you're married to this thing, and especially even something that for free, now all of a sudden you have $10 million worth of environmental cleanup that you are personally responsible for. That was such an awesome answer to that question. I want to make sure we clarify for our listeners out there that you didn't ask me to ask that question. I, you know, I asked that on the fly. You just had such an awesome answer. It almost sounds like it's a canned question. So I want to uh, recognize the, the quality of that answer off the cuff. That was great. Uh, so right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Jake, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> I'm sure you are. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So, I mean, there's lots of different things I can think about, but I'd say people. And I was kind of talking about this before. Uh-huh. Elon Musk has the same amount of hours that Taylor Jake has in a day. And Jeff Bezos has the same amount of hours in a given day. But you know what? They figured out how to leverage people and amplify their vision. And their vision is so big that other people connect and collect to them. So I was like investing into people, helping them hit and get their goals has been by far in the way the most impactful investment that I've ever made in is leverage just because it aligns to we can do things awesome together, or build a really big rocket ship together. Except for I don't want to go to Mars. <laughs> no, I wouldn't go either. I think a lot of folks say, hell yeah, I'd go. Come on, man. Let's be real. It's going to be terrible to live there. Great answer to that first question. I love that people are integral or to any business and they build the business and just building wealth. I love that. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I I, want to say it was like investing into one of these deals, but I was like, I I think it's to the mindset that it had to be related to money. So money is fake. Money is the fuel or the storage of energy. And so when I, at least I, I feel like the blessing was that I became a millionaire before 30 and I got to discover the accolades and get up at noon and be lazy and do those other things. And I was like, Ooh, I'm actually the worst version of myself (laughs) when I have nothing to do. And so then it was like, it's about growth. And those are the, the thing that was chasing the pursuit of money was what was the worst advice. I hope everyone gets to be tremendously successful and have all the money that they they desire and, and the fame and then they discover the vapidness of it and how little it's actually worth and so that you actually tr- truly pursue the things that are your purpose and the special unique 
gifts that God put you on this planet for. And I guarantee you, it's not about making money. Wow. Wow. I love that. Great. So is there anything in particular that comes to mind about the worst investment? Is there a throw one out there that really, really hammered you? I don't know. I think limiting beliefs. I mean, as far as as, there's so many things, because it's all about mindset. You know, when you believe there's limitations, there will be limitations. And so, I mean, that maybe that's nature you know, nurture. I don't know what it was that, that instills that into to us or to young Jake, uh, but limiting beliefs. Um, when you can disconnect yourself from that, then everything is truly possible. Very, very important. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Probably back to that uh, advice that I said earlier is all limitations are self-limitations. And so when I say that is everything is a construct of imagination, the physical environment, the building that you're sitting in right now was someone's imagination. Someone stood across the street or sitting from that location. They looked at that and they said, that'd be a fantastic place for a house, for an office building, for something else at some point in the future is they dreamed it. They thought about it. They imagined that it could be something. And then that vision they got an, an architect or a builder or a banker or a, you know, a, a framer or something else all collectively aligned to that vision. And then that just imagination, that construct of imagination turned into our physical reality of the existence of where you're living today. And then you're getting the benefits of someone else's imagination. So therefore, you have the ability to manipulate the environment and the physical environment around you just by imagining new things. And all limitations, again, are self-limitations because Elon Musk has the same amount of hours in a day. Jeff Bezos, what you can do and what is possible is unlimited. And and when you just em- embrace that, your unlimited nature and you can do impossible things. Love that. We were talking about limiting beliefs and and all of that and, and really extending that before we started recording and, and the importance of uh, really thinking the right things, I suppose, and bringing people into your business. It all harkens back to uh, before we started recording. So you've been <laughs> very consistent in that regard. I want to thank you for sharing all these lessons with us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to track down your book, uh, maybe on Amazon or wherever it's sold or anything like that, where can they find you? Catchknives.com is the best place to kind of connect up where they can buy the book or get, you know, sign up for our newsletter. They can get on the courses. They can, you know, hear lots of other content at jake.realestate on Instagram is where I'm most active as far as from social media. Uh, my team pushes out a lot of other content from the channels. You can just Jake Harris real estate. And I typically show up on Google. Maybe that's just my Google algorithm because I'm Googling myself and where those <laughs> shows up. Uh, maybe I don't know as far as other people, but I, I feel like Jake Harris Real Estate will probably populate me. The search engines are pretty uh, efficient at finding the content that I put out there. Love it. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.